Well, it's good to be back. Missed y'all last week, but, you know, somebody had to make sure Matt was going to get married and didn't get cold feet and abandoned ship or anything fun like that. And I was just the guy. Happy to let you know he got married and they made it back from their honeymoon. And so now the real fun starts. As I said earlier, I hope that you enjoyed having Rob with you last week. He's a, he's a really godly man. And uh, we're just lucky to have somebody like him to step in when I'm gone and just proclaim the truth in my absence. I'm also glad that he has future plans so you don't try to bring him in on instead of me. I would understand. It's been a little while, but uh, we've been walking through the book of Mark. I know it's hard to believe with all the Christmas season and the New Year's. And uh, we, we even preached a message out of Genesis. And uh, last week he preached out of Psalm uh, 67th chapter. But this morning we're going to get back to the book of Mark. And we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 6, verse 7. We're going to work our way down through verse 30 this morning. I'm hope, I hope you're excited to study the Bible. I, I, I definitely am. And so uh, I'm just glad to, to get back into the book of Mark. Uh, but, you know, I want to set the scene a little bit for what we're going to tackle this morning. Uh, it does a, kind of a similar thing that books and movies often do. They make use of what's called a flashback kind of scene. And, and that's sort of what's going on in our text. We're going to see followers of Jesus sent out, the twelve. And then we're going to have a flashback to the life of John the Baptist And then the pericope is going to close with the return of the disciples. And what we have before us is another of Mark's literary sandwiches. Remember, we saw it back in chapter 5, I think it was, where you have one story that Mark interrupts with another story, and then he closes the original story. And the purpose of that one in the middle is kind of to define the original story. Clear as mud. Uh, Last time I gave you the analogy, I just said I like sandwiches, and what defines a sandwich is what's in the middle. And so if you have ham in the middle, it's a ham sandwich. And that's kind of the same thing with the stories. The story is kind of the bread pieces and then the one in the middle, the John the Baptist part. That's the middle. That's going to help us define and interpret and understand the original story. Both stories are going to work together to make the same point. The sandwich structure this morning will draw our attention to both mission and martyrdom. It's going to draw our attention to discipleship and death. It's going to show us that they exist in an inseparable relationship. That's precisely what Jesus is going to teach later on in chapter 8, verse 34, where he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There are here, there as here, both words are addressed to the disciples. Whoever will follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John the Baptist. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow Jesus. I tried to summarize this idea for us this morning in our one big thing, which is that uh, thing that I want you to hold on throughout the week and think about as you meditate on this text and as you pray I've summarized it like this. Life requires death. True life. Life with Jesus requires that you die to yourself. It requires that you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. Life requires death. So we're going to work through the section in three parts. The sending of the 12, I've summarized that one as leaving in the outline you have before you. The death of John, I've summarized as dying in your outline. And the return of the twelve, which I've just said returning. So leaving, dying, and returning will give you the sense of the structure of the text as you're thinking about it throughout 
the week. Before we get started, let's pray together. Lord, you are enthroned forever, and your years have no end, yet you are mindful of us. Father, let your greatness and your beauty be known among us as we gather here this morning. Not only among us, but among all generations and in all places. Lord, you are mighty and you spoke the world into existence. Your word melts the earth and it shakes the skies. Your word puddles pride and it penetrates hearts. Let it do so this morning. Father, your grace wipes tears away and your love fills us with joy. Let it do so today. Father, give us a sense of your majesty. Let us taste and see that you are good. Help us to long to praise you with unending adoration. Let the excitement of being with you well up inside of us as we eagerly listen to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff. No bread, no bag, no money, no problem. In their belts. But to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. When I was reading that this week, I thought of that Taylor Swift song that's really popular. You know, haters going to hate, 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 hate. But I'm just going to shake, 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 shake it off. If you watch the New Year's uh, Eve thing at around midnight, she did that song. The the hook is shake it off. If you're not familiar, uh, go YouTube it. It's great. Good fun. I'm going to treat this real quickly here since I went down the rabbit trail. Uh, shaking, shaking the dust off of the feet represents judgment. This is actually a very searing indictment against Jewish people. You see, the Jews traveling outside of Palestine or Gentile regions were required to shake themselves free of the dust when they were returning back home, lest they pollute the Holy Land. And so in order to keep the Holy Land holy, they had to get that dirty Gentile land off of them before they went in. See, the commandment here to shake the dust off their feet if somebody doesn't receive them is tantamount to declaring a Jewish village heathen. So if a Jewish Jewish village will not receive those that Jesus has sent out, he's telling them, declare judgment against them. Shake the dust off your feet from there like it's dirty, it's not holy. They are outside of the people of God. If they refuse you, they've refused me and they've refused God himself. That's what he's telling them with the whole shake it off commitment. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. I think the main point here in these first six verses, verses 7 through 13, is that to be called by Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. To be called by Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. You know, he didn't call the twelve just so he could have a cool entourage or some buddies to hang out with him as he went about his business and did the work of ministry. 
Jesus had no intention of being a, a solo artist. Rather, from the outset, he called, he designated, and he taught a select group of followers to do the work of ministry. In these verses, he's continuing their training through kind of a trial mission on which they go as his representatives or deputies. He's commissioned the disciples, the twelve. He's empowered them, and he's instructed them. Jesus bestows authority on believers so that they may participate and further his ministry. So if you know Jesus, which hopefully many of you that are here do, then you've been empowered by Jesus to do the work of ministry. Probably not to cast out demons or heal the sick. I don't know if any of you have those gifts. They're pretty rare. But definitely to advance the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel. Paul tells us a a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that's you and me, and all the saints before and after us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ God, as he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Just as the disciples had to leave their old way of life, their old way of doing things and live out their new life, so too must all who follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be made new. To be called by Jesus is to be sent on mission for Jesus. Here we see Jesus sending the disciples out to proclaim his message. Likewise, he's commissioned his church, you and me, to continue the spread of the good news of the gospel. Which is simply that men and women are separated from God by their sin. That we're guilty of trying to be God. Trying to run our own lives. And as a result of that, we've declared collectively as humanity and individually, we've declared war on God and set ourselves up as his enemies. We are fully deserving of his wrath. And the good news is, is yet while all people, while we were fighting against God, he fought for us by becoming like us in the incarnation, in Christmas. He lived a perfect life on our behalf and he credits it to our account when we come to him by faith. He substituted himself in at the cross for us. We deserved that death. We couldn't live up to the standard of God's holiness and so we required Jesus as our stand in. His perfect life. He also stands in for us in his death. Because we haven't lived a perfect life. And sin requires judgment. He took the judgment for us. Additionally, Jesus rose from the dead. Proving his victory over death. And his ability to make men and women right with God. Only those that trust in Jesus get to enjoy relationship with God. But anyone who so desires that relationship can have it. That's good news. It's good news that we can be made right with God, that we can be in right relationship with him. It's what we were created for. It's what we've been commissioned to share. And so I ask you, who will you share the good news with this week? 
Notice also Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs. There are a variety of reasons for this. One example is that in Judaism, it required two witnesses to establish the fact of something. Therefore, establishing the credibility of Jesus' message required two witnesses. Makes sense? That's pretty clear, I think. Uh, But as I thought about this, I, I thought that perhaps another good reason for sending them out in pairs is that two is simply better than one. And that Christianity is, in its essence, a communal religion. See, there's no Lone Ranger version of Christianity. Lone Rangers are easy targets for the evil one, and they, they don't have any accountability in their lives. It's the, what the testimony of Scripture tells us, is that Christianity is not a solitary religion. It's meant to be lived out in community so that we can rightly image the perfect community that exists within our triune God. So that we can live out our love for one another, that we can make our love for God visible in our own relationships and in our own homes and in our communities. So that we can bear one another's burdens and overcome temptation. So that we can grow through accountability and encouragement. It's like God said all the way back in Genesis 2.18 to Adam. It's not good for man to be alone. And you can't live the Christian life alone. You need to be serving with someone. We all need each other. As annoying as we can get. I mean, sometimes I think we've all been guilty of withdrawing from community in some sense. And selfishly trying to, to go it alone. We have to overcome that. We have to overcome the desire to stay in bed and sleep a little bit longer. The desire to leave, you know, 10 or 15 minutes early to get home and see the pregame show for, for the Cowboys game. Talking to you, Herschel. We have to overcome that and press into community with one another. Can't go it alone. Church, we have to overcome the Lone Ranger mentality. And press into godly, Christ-like community with one another. I always say, uh, inconvenience is a byproduct of intimacy. Also, being annoyed. Like, you know, you're not always going to like each other all the time. It's part of being a family. I mean, ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) There's lots of times she doesn't like me. But we still press into community with one another. We still seek to serve one another because that's what God has called us to and His design is for our good and His glory. Press in. Also would like to bring your attention to the fact that the disciples are not exactly what we might call ready, right? Put that in air quotes. They're not ready for Jesus' mission. They haven't been thoroughly equipped. They don't have the answers to all the questions I mean, their record to this point in the gospel has not been very reassuring. Look at who Jesus is sending out. He's sending out those that have impeded his mission, been exasperated by him, and even opposed him. I mean, their perception of Jesus has been and will continue to be marked by misunderstanding. You know, they, they haven't arrived yet, but Jesus still sends them. I think this is really comforting. I mean, how comforting is it to know that Jesus knows we're not as equipped, we're not as ready as we could be? How comforting is it to know that Jesus knows you don't have all the answers? And he still sends you. He still sends us. I mean, it's great to know that when we say, God, I'm a sinner, 
don't know what to say. I'm so far from perfect. And he, he says to us, good. I've called you. I've cleansed you. As a result of knowing me, I've now commissioned you. Go and proclaim this good news to others. Proclaim that people need to turn from themselves towards me. That people need to repent and follow me. Friends, the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or the merit of the missionaries. It doesn't depend on our goodness, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. Jesus is what brings the word of God to fulfillment. Not your own effort. Yes, you still have to go out and share your faith. But God's the one that makes it happen. He's the one that brings out about the results. Your job is to just, uh, by faith, step out in the power of the Holy Spirit and share the word faithfully. And how awesome is that? You're not responsible for growing the gospel seed, only for scattering it. Share in faith. You pray for God to accomplish his will, and then you rest in the work of Christ, knowing that he keeps his promises and that the kingdom will flourish and it's growing even now. I mean, a few weeks ago, we said it like this, scatter and sleep. We're qualified to share the gospel by virtue of being saved by the gospel. This should embolden and excite you. You get to play a part in God's plan to fill the world with worshipers, to fill the world with people that know him. Because you know him, you're able to help other people know him. How are you doing at that? How are you helping others to know Jesus? When was the last time you shared the gospel? What excuses are you making for biting your tongue and speaking death over those who have not not heard? Because it's true, when you refuse to share the gospel with someone, You're denying them the ability to hear the words of life. And so even in your silence, you're speaking. When you remain silent, you are speaking death rather than life. You must share the gospel. To be called by Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. One last observation about this section because we need to move on. But uh, I did ask this question when I was reading it. Why are the disciples told to take next to nothing on their journey, right? So I'm going to suggest to you two reasons. First, to showcase the fact that the gospel is a new exodus for all those that follow Jesus from slavery to sin into right relationship with God. And secondly, to ensure that the disciples place their trust not in their supplies and in their training, but rather in the one that's sending them. So on the first note, a new exodus, Jesus suggests these specific items in order to make the readers think about the Hebrew exodus. There's a book named Exodus. It's the second one. If you want to read it later, you'll uh, eventually come across uh, chapter 12, verse 11, and you'll remember this section of scripture here in Mark. And you'll go, wait a minute, they're taking the same exact things here that Jesus told the disciples to take. That's crazy. The items that Jesus tells the disciples to take are identical to what God told the Hebrews to take on their flight from Egypt. Why? Well, I think that this little tidbit of information helps the reader, it helps you and me to see that Jesus is calling his followers out of their old way of life 
and into his new way of life. See, true disciples will turn from their sin and towards Jesus. They're going to leave their sin as Israel left uh, the yoke of the Egyptians and, and went on their way towards the Holy Land. True disciples are going to turn from that and they're going to begin walking towards God. This is indeed the start of a new and better exodus, which takes place under the true and greater Moses, who saves his people not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. Jesus' mandate to travel light will also require that the disciples trust Jesus instead of their stuff. It takes great confidence in Christ for the disciples to pack so minimally. I mean, imagine that you're getting ready for a, a big trip and uh, you lay everything out on your bed. Say, I got, I'm going to take this outfit for Monday, this for Monday night. I'm going to hang out with some famous people Monday night, so I probably want to look really, really good. I'm going to go here, so I'm going to need this. You've got 12 pairs of shoes. Uh, you're, you're getting it all together. And then right as you get ready to leave for your trip, you leave everything on the bed except for your coat and maybe your toothbrush. And that's, that's what's going on here. I think Edwards puts it well. He says this, True service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends, despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. Like the Israelites fleeing Egypt, the twelve must travel light, lest worldly cares blunt the urgency of the message. Man, that's stinging right there. I think that happens to us. Our, our comfort our creature comforts and our routines and worldly cares blunt the urgency of the message of the gospel. He continues, like Gideon's troops with their reduced numbers before the battle of Midian, they must go in dependency on God. Like birds of the air and lilies of the field, they must trust him alone who sends them. Jesus' severe instructions ensure that the twelve seek not their own advancement, but the advancement of the gospel. Friends, what has Jesus asked you to leave behind or give up to ensure that you will be characterized by dependence on him? What are you tempted to place your true faith, trust in, rather than Jesus? I'll just list the usual suspects, money, power, education, respect, career. What are you looking to, to bring you security in life? We must train our hearts to love and trust Jesus supremely. Train your heart to love and trust Jesus supremely, to depend on him solely. Now that Mark has recounted Jesus' sending of the twelve, he interrupts his story with another story of one sent by God, John the Baptist. So drop down to verse 14 with me. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others. He's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Let me take a drink from my tiny cup. It was the only one I could find. <clears throat> First, let's sort out who exactly Herod is. This is Herod Antipas. Keep track. It's going to get really confusing. Their family tree is kind of twisted. Everybody's named Herod something. 
So it's Herod Antipas is who's in view here. He's not a king, even though you're, you're reading the Bible. You're just, he just said he was king, Herod. Uh, Mark is employing a little bit of sarcasm there. Uh, Antipas wanted to be called king. He tried to get the title of king. He asked Emperor Augustus for it, and he was denied. Not a king. A little sarcasm going on. His nephew, Herod Agrippa, would become a king, though. He would get that title eventually, but not yet, not now. And so, sorry, I'm having some difficulty here. (laughs) And so, he gets the title of king, but Herod Antipas remains a tetriarch. It's not that great. It's just, uh, it means he's a ruler of one-fourth of his father, Herod the Great's kingdom. And so he is over Galilee and Perea. Now, Herod had heard of the gospel from John. He'd heard that gospel message to repent from sins and follow the one that God was sending, follow Jesus. And now he's hearing that same message, that spread of the gospel, and he's hearing about Jesus and the twelve. And he, like most people, is asking the question that's underneath all the text that we read in Mark, who is Jesus? He entertains three possibilities, right? He says, it could be John the Baptist resurrected, could be Elijah, or Jesus could be this, one of these prophets like those of old. The general population at this point believed Jesus to be just a really fancy prophet. Herod, however, is convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. I think it's because he knew that he had wrongfully murdered John. He killed an innocent man. Killed one that was called a miracle child. He's born to a priest named Zechariah and his barren wife Elizabeth in their old age. He was uniquely called from his mother's womb. And he was the man who Jesus would later say was the greatest man who ever lived. Herod had John's blood on his hands and it haunted him. Must be John resurrected. That holy man of God. I couldn't silence him. I'm still hearing his message. Do you live your life in such a way that if you were to die, someone might mistake you for Jesus? What I mean is this. Are you honoring God with your life to the extent that even those that would like to kill you would admit that you lived a holy life? Does your life point to Jesus like John's did? Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. So let me set the scene for you a little bit here. Herod had met his niece, which her name is Salome or Salami is how I read it initially. We learn her name from Josephus, which is an extra biblical account. And so he he meets her in Rome. It's like his stepdaughter. It gets really weird. At the same time, she was married to... I'm sorry, Herodias is the niece. Make it more confusing for you. At the same time, she was married to his half-brother, Herod Philip, making her also his sister-in-law. So she's niece and sister-in-law. 
And somehow or another, uh, she leaves her husband for Herod Antipas. And so he marries his sister-in-law niece. Now wife. Lots of titles for her. They end up married. It's a clear act of adultery and bigamy. And this is where John comes in. He tells Herod uh, more than once that this isn't right. It's not inside of God's design. He shouldn't be with Herodias. I think it's interesting that John shares the message. It's the same message with Herodias and Herod, but they respond so differently. Herod kind of fears John because he thinks that John's a pretty good guy. And so he hears him gladly, even though he doesn't understand everything. Whereas Herodias wants to kill him. Shows us a few things about how John must have communicated his message. I think it shows us that John was winsome in his communication. He seems to have shown great gentleness and care while telling hard truths. I think he spoke the truth in love. And that's why Herod's able to hear him gladly. uh, Herod is, is kind of a skeptic here. He's willing to listen to a good teacher, but he's not willing to change his life. That sounds very similar to some skeptics in contemporary society and some church attenders. They'll hear the message of the gospel gladly, but they will not change their lives. Church and Jesus are just good things that they do, but they're they're not life-changing, not life-altering. Are you like Herod? Hearing gladly, but not not being changed. Following Jesus requires your life. It requires change. Herod hears gladly, but Herodias holds on to her killer grudge. As the old proverb says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Herodias will not allow John's word, the word of God, to contradict her sexual desires. You know, if God cannot correct your thinking on something, then he is not God. He's not your God. You are. If God cannot correct your thinking, then he is not your God. You are. We all should be able to be corrected by the word of God. We need to submit to it. Our thinking must be allowed to be corrected. I wonder, who is allowed to correct your thinking? Who is allowed to speak truth into your life? If God cannot correct your thinking, then he's not your God. You are. Herodias hates John's message because it tells her that her sexual expression is outside of God's design and is to the detriment of her and others. Therefore, it's wrong. It's sin. John's calling her actions sin. You know, lovingly speaking the truth into someone's life with gentleness and care is it's never easy. It's not easy. However, our responsibility as God's ambassadors is to speak the truth in love. Our responsibility today is the same as John's was to preach the gospel of repentance and faith. There's been sexual brokenness since the fall of humanity. It existed in John's day and it exists in ours. There's addiction to pornography. There's multiple sexual partners. There's same-sex partners. There's adultery. There's premarital sex. All these are prominent and antithetical to God's purpose for sex. He did create it after all. He does want us to enjoy it, but inside of his his good and perfect design, which is Christian marriage. 
Speaking to these issues of sexuality and identity is both difficult and necessary. But as we do so, we must remember both that some people will hate us for promoting and holding to a biblical sex ethic and that we're talking to real people. I mean, people don't like to be told they're wrong, right? And when you try to engage in these types of conversation, especially in our current cultural climate, you're likely to be called bigot or worse. I mean, you might lose your job, as did uh, the gentleman on Atlanta's uh, fire staff this week. Their fire chief was uh, let go because of his Christian convictions. You can check that article out in the New York Times. But if we're called, we must obediently proclaim that God's grace is available to any who would turn from their sin and toward God. So as you exchange your ideas with others and promote God's design for sexuality and marriage, do so with compassion and love. Have to remember that our goal is not to spew hatred or vitriol toward organizations or businesses, but to lovingly persuade real people. Sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandmothers, grandfathers must engage with real people, must engage them with real love and the real gospel of the real God. The lost, those outside of relationship with Jesus need your friendship. They need your influence. They need your care. Not your self-righteous hatred. So share the message of the gospel like John with gentleness and respect so that if the gospel so that if someone is offended it's the gospel that's doing the offended rather than your communication of it proclaiming the gospel faithfully will give you a ministry of truth and tears You will see some repent and rejoice in the truth with tears of joy. And you're going to see others hate it. You will mourn with tears of sorrow. If you care for them as Jesus cares for them. Herodias will not allow anyone or any message to contradict her. And so she seeks to silence John and his ideas. She holds her grudge and waits and plots while he is in prison. Herodias feels or felt the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death certificate of John the Baptist. An opportunity came in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So we've got Herod's birthday here. He's throwing a a big party, which is pretty normal to us, not so normal in Jewish culture. And in his shindig that he's having, he he invites over some movers and some shakers. The place is filled with the rich and the famous and the influential. So maybe think like President Obama, LeBron James, and the, the GM of Exxon or something to that effect or at a party of yours, and you're trying to impress them. And then we read verse 22. Herodias rolls in and she dances for them. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king, sarcasm, said to the girl, which is his stepdaughter and niece, the whole scene's pretty gross here. He says to her, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half 
of my kingdom. Now, we're not told how Herodias' daughter danced here. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the chicken dance or the waltz, though. Probably more of the exotic variety. But what we do know is that Herod is pleased. And he offers up a generous gift with this figure of speech. Whatever you ask up to half my kingdom reminds us of language in Esther. Basically, he's obliging himself to give the girl, Salome or Salome, Herodias' daughter, a generous gift. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Here we see Herod struggle with what I think Paul would call worldly sorrow. Not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Herod hears John gladly, even fears God a little bit. But he fears men, the rich and the famous that are at his party, more than God. His pride and his need for the approval of others prevent him from reneging on his promise. Pride and felt obligations often hinder people and hinder you and me from following Jesus. How are you like Herod? Do you sometimes act out of pride or felt obligation instead of doing what is right? Herod's desire for approval here, I think, is normal too, right? I would bet many of us often look to approval as a functional savior, just like Herod did. It's normal. We're wired, I think, to look for affirmation outside of ourselves. The only place we find this affirmation in the right way is in right relationship with Jesus. It's only in him that we receive the gift of God's eternal acceptance and approval. It's only when we really rest in his well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. It's only when we rest in that that we'll stop looking towards others to approve us. So how are you seeking the approval of others? Where do you find your value or your worth? Are you looking to others for that or are you looking to Jesus? And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl went and gave it to her mother. Herodias finally gets what she wants. Her evil plotting bears fruit. John is dead. Question, how are you like Herodias? Are you guilty of nursing grudges and bitterness in your heart, waiting for an opportunity to get revenge, to get back at someone else? It's evil. It's evil and it will steal your joy and it will chill your intimacy with God. Christian, let go of your anger. Let go of your bitterness. Let go of your frustration and forgive. Forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. 
Herodias may have won the day. John was dead, but the gospel went forward. And justice would reign. You know, John died in his early 30s. He never performed a single miracle. He had public ministry that only lasted about a year. Yet Jesus called him one of the greatest men to ever live. Make the most of your time. I think also we see here that bad things do happen to good people. But God knows and he will judge rightly. Furthermore, death cannot silence life. John's message was Jesus' message. It was the disciples' message and it is our message. John's legacy went forward. Not many people are named Herod today. The gospel cannot be silenced. It advances through the blood of the martyrs and the lips of the saints, through the work of the Spirit. God builds His kingdom. And sometimes He does so mysteriously through the death of His choicest servants. Like John here. And like Jesus later. Verse 29. When His, that's John's, disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That's kind of the end of that middle sandwich part that we've been talking about. And then here's the return of the disciples who were sent out way at the beginning. The apostles, that, that word apostles just means sent out ones or messengers. The apostles returned to Jesus, that's the 12, and told him all that they had done and taught. The sandwich structure draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into inseparable relationship. It's precisely what Jesus is going to teach in chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There, as here, both words are addressed to disciples. Whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow him. Life requires death. John died so that the message of the gospel of grace could go forward. Jesus died to secure its promise. We must die to ourselves and to sin in order to take hold of the promise and become the righteousness of Christ. Did you know there are only two passages in the entire gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus? And both are about John. And both foreshadow Jesus. In fact, John is the forerunner of Jesus' message and his ministry. The second time we see the narrative divert from attention on Jesus, which is the passage before us, we learn that John might be thought of this, this section might be thought of as Mark's first passion narrative. Because here we see John as the forerunner of Jesus' death. The parallels between the deaths of John and Jesus are especially clear. Both John and Jesus are executed by political tyrants who fear them, but facilitate and finally succumb to social pressure. In John's case, Antipas acquiesces to Herodias, and in Jesus' case, Pilate acquiesces to the mob. Both John and Jesus die silently as victims of political intrigue and corruption. As sheep silent before their shearers. And most obviously, both die as righteous and innocent victims. Don't miss the point of Mark's literary sandwich. 
John's martyrdom prefigures more than Jesus' crucifixion. It exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world of greed and decadence and power and wealth. Mark puts the brutal and moving account of the murder of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and their return in order to impress on his readers, on you and me, the cost of discipleship. Life requires death. The cost of following Jesus is great, but the reward is infinitely greater. Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What are you refusing to die to? What's keeping you from following Jesus? You must die to it. Die to pagan living. Die to living for food and drink and clothing and sex and money and power and respect. Die to selfish gain. Die to living for yourself. Kill what is earthly in you. Put it to death, says Colossians. Trust in Jesus. Yearn for more of him. Dying to yourself means that you should be excited about being here. Means that you should long for fellowship. Like you might long for water on a hot day in the desert. Dying to yourself means longing for more of God, more of his word, more of his people. It means wanting to come to Sunday school. It means wanting to come to Bible study in addition to Sunday service. It means wanting to have dinner with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Dying to yourself means longing for Jesus. Longing to grow closer to him. It means struggling against sin and walking in newness of life. Christian growth does not happen on its own. You don't become more mature, closer to Jesus, just by living longer. It doesn't happen that way. You grow in Christ by making your goals His goals. And by, by grace-driven, spirit-empowered Effort taking one metaphorical foot and putting it in front of the other and following Jesus. You do it by being devoted to spiritual formation. Grow in Jesus by submitting to and being shaped by him. You mature by walking with him. Challenge you this morning collectively and individually. To grow up. To go hard after God. To draw near to Him. To study your Bible. To listen to the Word preached. To discuss it throughout the weekend and Sunday school. I challenge you to pray. It's time to grow up. Dying to yourself, it's not going to make your life easy. But it will make your life joyful. We together must put an end to half-hearted, status quo, nominal Christianity here at Rockfish. It must be killed. We as a church must return to seeking first the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel.
We can no longer erect roadblocks to gospel ministry. The way we have always done it can no longer be allowed to stand in the way of the message of the gospel. We must change our mindset from what must I do to what can I give? How can I serve? How can I help? How can I make much of Jesus instead of much of myself? I fear we love Jesus too little. And as a result, we have come, become content with, with the status quo, with the routine, with the same old, same old. And instead of dying to ourselves, we've started living to ourselves. To that same old, same old. To that comfort. We must allow the word of God to shake us awake. Wake up! The world is dying. This valley is dying. It needs Jesus. We must press forward according, according to the words of Paul in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus made me his own. If we do not press on and die to ourselves daily. God will not use this church. And somebody else will come. He'll send someone else. And they'll do an autopsy of this dead church. And do things differently. We must press on and share the gospel. We must forget what lies behind. Die to ourselves individually and collectively and strain forward to what lies ahead. Toward glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying him by filling the earth with worshipers of him. Friends, we need to stretch ourselves into discomfort so that we might grow. I think a really, really simple and practical way for us to do this, to really practically recommit ourselves to the mission of God and to help us grow as a church, I think, I think we should support Rob Conley in Uptown Church. He was here last week. He's, he's trying to plant a church. It's him and a few other gentlemen. I think we should do it long term. Make them a sister church. We're generous. We are a generous church. I think we could easily commit ourselves to giving them a monthly gift so that they can have staff, so that the word of God can, can be preached in Martinsville, Virginia. Not just in this valley. We have to stop waiting on someone else to do the work for us. We should support them so they can preach the gospel here, or preach the gospel there. And I tell you, they're already praying for us so that we can preach the gospel here. I had a friend that uh, has a place up on Wintergreen, and 
they, they visit our church from time to time, and they told me for years I have been praying for this, the little rock church in the valley. And I've been praying over the valley, Lord, just like Ezekiel, let these dry bones, this dead valley come to life. You can make it come to life, Lord. And that should be our prayer. That Jesus might be famous here. He would be known. Friends, I, I challenge you to commit to sharing the gospel in this community and supporting Uptown Church financially so that the gospel can be preached in that community. Let, let's leave the old self and the, the old sin behind. Let's die to ourselves. And live with the expectation of Christ's return. Let's not be the same tomorrow as we are today. Tomorrow. Let's all, by the power of the Spirit, be more like Jesus. Life requires death. And so I tell you, die. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So I tell you, live. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege it is to know you and to be called by you. You've called us sons and daughters. You've taken us from poverty and wretchedness. And you've called us royalty. You've taken our sin-stained garments from our shoulders and placed upon us your robes of righteousness. Father, keep us from returning to those rags. Keep us from returning to old sins and old routines and into loving self. Help us to love you. Don't let us stay the same. Press on us with your word. Step on our toes. Make us holy as you are holy. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.